So far the words of our text. Following the sermon, we will stand and sing our initial response, doing so with the words of Psalm 25, the stanzas 2, 4, and 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, today, as you likely know, is Pentecost. That word Pentecost comes from a Greek word meaning 50th. Fifty days after Jesus Christ rose from the dead, his promise was fulfilled as the Spirit descended in power, and we have that glorious event recorded for us in Acts chapter 2. Now, if you read Acts 2, you'll also notice that there were immediate results when the Spirit was poured out in such power. But this work that you read of is something that the Son of God spoke about in his final teaching that he did with his disciples before his death. We read part of that in John chapter 16. And what's interesting to note, just from that passage that we read, is that the Lord Jesus starts by keeping things very broad, and then he moves into more narrow instruction. In verse 8, he says, And when he, that's the Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Spirit did come to be active in the world. He convicts the world about the reality of their sin, about the need for righteousness, and about the certainty of judgment. There's his broader work. But then it becomes more narrow. For you see, the Spirit's not just active in the world around us. Even more directly, the Spirit is working in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's what our Lord addresses in the words of our text. These words are given for a specific reason. They're meant to comfort his church. They're meant to encourage and direct his church throughout the ages. And so about these matters, I proclaim to you the word of God this morning, doing so under the theme, the spirit of truth guides the church into all the truth. We're going to look at two points. First, we'll consider the necessity of the Spirit's work. And secondly, we'll look at the character of the Spirit's work. The way in which the Lord Jesus shifts from the Spirit's work in the world to his work in the church is quite interesting to note. Because what comes out right away is that the work of the Spirit will be absolutely necessary for the disciples and for the church as a whole. You see that in the words of our text. The Lord Jesus says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Well, that immediately raises the question, why could the disciples not bear anything more than what the Lord had taught them? And to understand this, we have to look a little bit more at the context in which Jesus spoke these words. We mentioned in the introduction that our text is part of the last teaching conversation he had with his disciples. Very shortly, he would be betrayed into the hands of the Sanhedrin, sentenced to death. But that whole night where the Lord Jesus was teaching his disciples, 
it was not exactly a shining moment for the disciples. In the first place, you had the actions of Judas Iscariot. And the whole time, he was looking for a moment in which he could betray his Lord. Now, you might think, okay, well, that's one guy, and we know what was going on with him. But it's not as though the rest of the disciples were much better. The whole account of that last evening begins in John 13. And at the end of that chapter, the Lord Jesus predicts that Peter will publicly deny him. What's Peter's reaction to that? Is Peter humbled by those words from the Lord? Does he plead with the Lord to help him fight against temptation and to resist sin at that time? No, Peter proudly states, I will lay down my life for you. We know that's not what happened in the end. In chapter 14, Jesus addresses his disciples. And he says, let not your hearts be troubled. So it's clear that the disciples are really bothered by what they're hearing from him. And throughout the whole evening, they continually show that they're struggling to grasp what their teacher says. Chapter 14, verse 7, Jesus says to them, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. But then Philip responds, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So what you see with the disciples that whole evening is they are incredibly confused. They don't fully understand Jesus Christ in terms of his identity. They don't fully comprehend the work that he came to do in this world. And three times during his ministry, Jesus had foretold He's going to be put to death, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. And consistently the disciples could not understand it. It never made sense to them. Well, all of that leads up to our text. Where Christ says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. The truth is that the Lord Jesus could have continued to instruct them a lot more. He could have told them more about his death, about his resurrection. He could have told them what his death would mean in terms of the forgiveness of sins. He could have said about how through his resurrection, those united with him would receive the gift of new life. To use the official theological words, the Lord Jesus could have talked more about justification, sanctification, glorification. And if you think about everything contained in the Gospels, over against everything contained in the epistles of the New Testament, there is that clear development of teaching. It's all based, it's all centered on the person and work of Christ. But at this particular moment, there in that upper room, the disciples can't bear it. And the Lord Jesus uses some interesting words. The word translated as bear. It has the literal meaning of to pick up or to take up. It's not something easy. It's meant in the sense of sustaining a burden. There's a certain weight involved to this. 
So what exactly does, our, does the Son of God mean when he says that the disciples cannot bear such teaching? Well, based on what he's saying here, what he means is this. The disciples may be able to hear the words, but they can't work with what they're hearing in the fullest way. The Lord Jesus could say as much as he wanted about his death, his resurrection, even his ascension. But the benefits of those redemptive events could not be fully grasped at that moment. The implication they had would have been missed. And when one cannot live out of the teaching they receive, then it follows that the teaching is less effective. And the Lord Jesus develops this even more later on in the text. The end of verse 13, he says, The Spirit will declare to you the things that are to come. And that raises the question, what are the things that our Savior is referring to there? The word for declare is often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament about the Lord proclaiming what is to come. It includes the fact that he is able to do so, but there are no others. For example, Isaiah 42, verse 9, we read, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Isaiah 46, verse 9, God says about himself, I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done. So some look at this text... And they suggest that these things that the Lord Jesus speaks about is a reference to where everything's headed. They see it as the Spirit revealing the different events that will take place at the end of world history, and they suggest that it refers to everything contained in the book of Revelation. But if you look at the context, likely that the Lord Jesus refers to something different. When Christ speaks about the Spirit declaring the things yet to come, the context suggests he's referring to the events soon to take place. Christ's death, his resurrection, his ascension. These were the things the disciples had been asking about all evening. Our Savior spoke to them about how he would soon be leaving them. And as we read in verse 6, their hearts were filled with sorrow. They didn't understand. Why does he have to go? Well, the Lord Jesus says, the Spirit's going to come. And he will declare to the disciples what had taken place so that they would actually understand these events. So that they'd be able to work with these events going forward in their own life. And through the Spirit working in the disciples in this way, he would cause them to record such understanding so that the church as a whole would have the declaration of these truths concerning Christ and his work. We already see how this works out in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, you have the account of the Ethiopian eunuch who's re returning to his queen. And as he travels, he's reading from Isaiah chapter 53. Well, directed by the Holy Spirit... Philip goes to talk with this man and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And this is how the man answers Philip. How can I, 
unless someone guides me. Note the similar language to what we have in our text. Well, Philip goes aboard, and he instructs the man how that passage points to the Lord Jesus. In the end, the eunuch is baptized. So there is clear development that takes place. But here in our text, the disciples cannot bear it. It's too much for them. And perhaps it'd be easy for us to come down on the disciples, wouldn't it? We could easily be left wondering, how can these guys be so dull? They'd followed the Lord Jesus for three years. They were instructed by the Son of God himself. Why didn't it register with them? People, pay attention. But we need to be careful when we're analyzing things. Because when you look throughout history, what you see is that understanding comes after the redemptive event. If you think about God's people in the Old Testament, how much did they fully grasp the death of the Son of God? They had the teaching of the prophets, they had the sacrifices, they had the ceremonies of the law, but it was not until after the death of the Lord Jesus that these things became more fully understood. Same thing could be said about his resurrection, his ascension. In the Old Testament, there were the shadows. There was not a full understanding of such things until after the events took place. So yes, today, we understand a lot more. But it's not because we're on some higher level than the disciples. What really makes the difference is the event that the Lord Jesus speaks about in our text. The full implications of his death, his resurrection, his ascension, they're more fully understood by us today only because of the work of the Holy Spirit that by which he works faith in our hearts. Because the truth of the matter is, of ourselves, by nature, we are just as spiritually dull as the disciples were. By ourselves, without the Spirit, we cannot comprehend those wonderful mysteries revealed to us in the Word of God. How do we know that? Think of what we read in 1 Corinthians 2. In verse 7, Paul writes about a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verses 11 and 12, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. It is so clear that it's the work of the spirit in our hearts that makes all the difference. It's through the Spirit we're instructed in the Word about the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and that we're able to understand it, but also to work with it. To use that language of our text, it's through the work of the Spirit that we are able to bear 
such things. And that's important. You see, it's one thing to have the facts firmly fixed in mind. But the question will always be, what do you do with them? How do those facts, how does what you know reflect and show in your life? Well, by ourselves, all those facts would do nothing for us. And even hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the human mind apart from the work of the Spirit, that message is one of pure folly. We read that in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Clearly, it's through the Spirit's work that things are different. It's through the Spirit's work that now, when we hear about the depth of our sins and our misery, we also hear about the good news of forgiveness of sins, we know what to do. And that's to fall on our knees at the foot of the cross. When we hear about the new life that we have through Christ's resurrection, we're enabled by the Spirit to live out of that life. We have the Spirit enabling us to will and to work, to live by faith, as Paul writes about in Philippians 2. When we hear about Christ's ascension and how we benefit from Him sitting on the throne, we're not filled with sorrow like the disciples, but through the Spirit we are able to go forward with comfort and peace that Christ is on that throne governing all things, working to the time when He will return. Brothers and sisters, these are truths that we can easily take for granted for many of us, we've heard about them for a long time. But what it really is, it's the evidence of the Spirit's work in our hearts and our lives. It's the Spirit's work in the church of Jesus Christ. He opens our heart. He enlightens our mind. He softens that which was hard also that the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root within us. He powerfully bends our will so that we live out of that gospel. And what we see as we go forward in this way is that the work of the Spirit has a specific character to it as well. We come to our second point. When you look at verse 13 of our text, you'll notice there's one word that is used two times. It's the word truth. The Spirit is identified as the Spirit of truth. He comes to guide the church into all the truth. So in a sense, the character of the Spirit's work is quite clear. His work is all centered on the truth. But there's still some underlying questions that remain. Why does the Lord Jesus identify the Spirit in this way? Why does the church need the Spirit to guide her into all the truth? What is truth? We can deal with these things a bit more. It's good to note here that in John, 
when the Lord Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit, he often identifies him as the Spirit of truth. It's not only here in our text. You also find it in John 14, verses 16 and 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. And when John wrote his first epistle, he takes over that same language. First John 4, verse 6 and 5, verse 6, the Holy Spirit is identified with the truth. So clearly there is a pattern that comes out. But Why? Why is the Spirit consistently identified with the truth? The answer, brothers and sisters, is because of the Spirit's very identity. We know He's the third person in the Holy Trinity. But everything about God is truth. Psalm 119, verse 160 Psalmist praises God by saying, The sum of your word is truth. Moses praises the Lord as the God of truth, Deuteronomy 32, verse 4. And not only is the Father identified with truth, but also the Son. John 1, verse 14, the Lord Jesus came full of grace and truth. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. So then the fact that the Spirit is characterized as the Spirit of truth shows that connection he has with both the Father and the Son. Each one is identified with truth. This also comes out in verse 13 more. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. Some interesting words there, aren't there? It almost makes it seem like the Spirit is on a level below the Father and the Son. He doesn't speak on his own authority. He takes what he hears, and he conveys that message. But that would be a very wrong understanding of the text. This is not about the Spirit being lower than the Father or the Son. It's not about different levels in the triune God. It's about the consistency of the message. Father, Son, and Spirit all proclaim the same thing. It's impossible to pick apart what they speak and find something contradictory. And all of this is incredibly important because what we know from Scripture, what we experience in this world, is that not only is there the truth, there's also the lie. And it all goes back to paradise, where the evil one took the truth of God's word to our first parents, and he twisted that truth ever so slightly. This is the main theme that John works with in his gospel. With the triune God, you have truth, but opposed to him, you have the kingdom of darkness promoting the lie. Think about what the Lord Jesus says in John chapter 8. You have a number of Jews who claim to have Abraham as their father. They state in verse 41, we have one father, even God. So they claim to belong to the Lord, identified with truth, 
But the Lord Jesus challenges their claim very directly. Verse 44, he says to them, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Here it is. And does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There's the contrast in plain terms. The triune God's character is truth. The character of the evil one, the ancient foe, is that he is a liar and he's the father of lies. And our Savior confirms this conflict at the moment right before he's sentenced to death. John 19, verse 37, he says to Pontius Pilate, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And all of that, it shows why the Lord Jesus identifies the spirit in our text as the spirit of truth. It's because of this ongoing conflict, this ongoing enmity between the truth and the lie. The spirit of truth comes to convict the world regarding sin, righteousness, and judgment. But he also comes to guide the church into all the truth. The spirit of truth is the answer to the prayer that we will sing of in Psalm 25 after the sermon. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. And notice that the spirit has different work in the world versus in the church. When it comes to the world, it's about convicting, confronting the world with the error of its way. But when it comes to his work in the church... It's about guiding. The Spirit leads the bride of Christ. He shows her the right way. He brings her forward to her final destination, namely as that spotless bride of Christ presented without blemish. As our Savior says in the text, the Spirit will guide the disciples and through them the entire church into all the truth. important statement bears some consideration because just a moment ago we talked about how the Lord Jesus spoke before Pontius Pilate do you recall what Pontius Pilate said in response to the Lord Jesus Pilate asked the question what is truth and it's a similar question that continues to get asked today for many, the truth is a very foggy concept. For many, the truth is something relative. Each person can have their own truth. Each person can decide for themselves what is true or what is the lie. And that's just not outside in the world as some scary threat. But the one who's characterized as the father of lies seeks to have his lies grow and fester within the church as well. There are churches who have adopted this thinking, that the truth is something we cannot ever really know. They say the truth is subjective. It depends on your thoughts. It depends on your experiences. They say in order to understand truth, you have to understand your culture first. There are people in the church 
will try to justify doing things a different way, and they'll say, the Spirit led me to do this. Well, since he's the Spirit of truth who leads the church into the truth, their message must be correct then. But it's a very wrong understanding of what the Lord Jesus sent the Spirit of truth to accomplish. He didn't send the Spirit to sow seeds of confusion. He didn't send the Spirit to lead the person one way, one person one way, another person another way. No, the Spirit led the disciples and he leads the church throughout the ages into all the truth. The truth. Not one truth among many. Not whatever a person thinks might be the truth. Not a partial truth. But all the truth. And notice that the Spirit doesn't just give the church the truth and say, okay, you guys figure it out going forward. No, he guides the church. Dwelling in the church as his temple, the Spirit continues to instruct the church, not only as to the contents of the truth, but also how to live out of that truth. And he does so using the source of all truth, the Word of God. What we have here is inspired by the Spirit of truth. He caused men to commit these things to writing so that the way of salvation and the will of God who is truth would be made known and declared in the church of Jesus Christ. In this regard, you can think of what Paul writes about the scriptures in 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So what's the results of the Spirit's work? The church and each individual believer is called to hold to the Scriptures as the only standard for faith and for life. It's the Scriptures that direct us to Jesus Christ that through him alone there's forgiveness and redemption. It's the scriptures that lay out the way in which God's people delivered from their sins ought to live in thankfulness. We have the Ten Commandments. We have the command to love one another. We have the different passages that explain and apply the commandments, showing what it means for the life of the believer. And as we, individually and collectively, are guided by the Spirit through the Word, our lives will increasingly reflect God's truth. You can see that from Psalm 51, which we sang earlier. In stanza 3, we took these words on our lips. You teach me all the wisdom I must know, for you want truth to dwell and rule within me. In stanza 4, there was the prayer that God would not take away His Spirit, Truth and the Spirit directly connected there again. It's through the Spirit's work in us that the truth of God's Word is expressed in our lives as we live out of it. It's a truth that applies to the words that we speak, the thoughts in our mind, the decisions we make, the actions we perform. 
And it's all here in the word, which comes from the spirit of truth. It's there we have direction for our lives. We have instruction for how to go forward as church of Jesus Christ. He helps us to apply the word to life in marriage, to life in our family, in our society, and in the congregation. And so as congregation, let us hold fast to the word of truth, a gift of God to us in his love. And as believers, let us thank God for the gift of the spirit of truth who guides the church to her final rest in glory. Amen.